and I saw all these huge inefficiencies which were choking me when I worked in the bank because it was stifling innovation to, to work in a bank. And then I saw this huge possibility that a smart contract can strip away 90% of middlemen or middle women or that middle layer, that marzipan layer of staff. And that's what really got me interested. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I had a really interesting conversation with Huff House, which is not his real name, but Huff is the co-founder of the Pair Protocol, which is a new decentralized exchange on Arbitum that is seeking to put trading pairs together. Get it? Pair, P-E-A-R and P-A-I-R. So you can put trading pairs together in a decentralized um, exchange fashion where you're going to go long on one digital asset and short on another. So you could be going long Ethereum and short Atom uh, if you wanted to do that trade. Um, that's using derivatives and uh, there's also leverage involved. And um, I was interested to learn that there isn't anything like this out there in the market yet, uh, which this is a very common thing that you would find in traditional finance. That's where Huff came from. He spent 11 years at a large investment bank on the trading floor uh, in equity derivatives and in volatility products like options. So he's bringing all that experience into the Web3 world. And we talked about how the differences are vast between, you know, the Wall Street model um, of being sort of cautious and um, not really trying to break the mold and about how Web3 is all about um, bringing new people into the fold and offering these products and services to folks who wouldn't be able to get them um, in the traditional world through a bank. Um, we also talked about how crypto trades on narratives and uh, about how they are keeping a really close eye on regulation at Pair Protocol um, because first of all, they're using derivatives and second of all, there are issues around staking right now where here in the US at least, uh, the uh, SEC seems to be thinking that staking uh, and someone who stakes their coins and then earns an interest uh, payment on that uh, could qualify as a security, as a financial instrument. So that's a uh, big feature of the pair protocol, which is based in the UK, and they are keeping uh, an eye on that. And we also talked about anonymity in this uh, world as well, and why Huff is choosing to uh, have a pseudonym, uh, which is an interesting sort of little facet I've always um, been intrigued by in, in the Web3 world. So with all that being said, uh, let's get to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot for listening. Hey, Huff. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. How are you, Matt? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. And uh, where am I speaking to you today from? I am currently just outside of London. Nice. Nice. Um, it has spring sprung there? or what, how, how are things? How suicidal are you at this point? <laughs> it's springing. I think one of the nice things about being in crypto is you have plentiful opportunities to, to be part of the conference circuit. So looking forward to getting some more predictable weather this summer yeah did you go to miami i was on the verge of going to miami um and then just a couple of in real life things popped up here so i had to stay um i had an offer to join a panel um but didn't get to exercise it unfortunately oh that's too bad miami is a it's nice this time of year as i'm sure you know so funny story 
Huff is not your real name, and, and you were sort of introduced to me as Huff House, which I learned today was is a German conglomerate that makes modular housing. <laughs> so it's literally a company. And so uh, I wasn't able to do any background on you, so I'm coming uh, to this interview, uh, except for what you're doing at Pair Protocol, which I understand it's, it's um, and that's P-E-A-R for listeners, which I appreciate your, um, your wordsmithing there. Uh, it's it's a soon-to-be-released protocol that will allow you to trade crypto pairs long-short using leverage. Um, but other than that, I don't really have much background on you. So I, I was wondering if you could just kind of jump in and, and help, like, where, where are you coming from? What, what, what was the path that led you to Web3? And then maybe we could um, get into it from there. Perfect. So probably slightly older than some people um, in Web3. So I... Graduated university in 2010, did an economics major, took a linear path into investment banking, um, joined the trading floor of a large investment bank, um, did that for the best part of just over a decade. And then in my early 30s, I rage quit my job. So having spent a decade on the trading floor, uh, mostly in the kind of equity derivatives business um, at two banks. I actually rage quit my job without much of a plan. Um, <laughs> now, now can we can we get some more detail? Like, how tell us what was the rage quit? Like, how did it go down? Yeah, so I mean, traditional finance was just, and it still is at this juncture where a lot of the people that are working in it, their intention is to keep their job. It's not necessarily to innovate. It's to to kind of clip your coupons, if you will. And as a young man, I found that incredibly frustrating because I had a bunch of ideas. I had things I wanted to do or see through. And there was always this resistance um, to to doing anything kind of bold um, in my space. I'll give you an idea. Like I said, oh, for this new product we're launching, perhaps we should create a video. Um, And that video we can then show at client meetings. We don't need to uh, take paper with us. It's much more environmentally friendly and we can talk around the video um, after the pitch. And just got huge pushback on on like a long list of those kind of ideas. Mm. Um, so one day I went in, it was after one of my birthdays, um, just after my 30th birthday. And I said, look, I don't really have a plan, but this isn't working for me. Um, I don't want to do this for the next 10 years. And so I'd like to hand in my notice. And that was that was the end of that chapter. Was there a precipitating event or was it just like things had just cumulatively gotten so that you just had to get out? Um, I think it was definitely cumulative. I'd been feeling that way for a long time. So I'd kind of seen the first wave of fintech startups come and go and didn't jump on board of that innovation. So if you cast your mind back to kind of 2015, 2016, I was maybe five, six years into my career. Um, you had businesses in the UK like Funding Circle um, coming up, these kind of fintech innovators who were trying to innovate payments and, and funding markets. Um, in a peer-to-peer kind of way. I had an opportunity to join uh, a few of them and I turned it down. And so when this kind of DeFi movement started to gain traction, I'd learned my lesson at that point to really kind of pay attention. And next time, the biggest risk was to take no risk, um, Mm. was my mindset. I didn't have a wife, I didn't have children. And so I decided to just free up my time um, and kind of explore things that piqued my interest. Had um. Had you been paying attention to Bitcoin or Ethereum at that point, or was this something that brought you to to that? I had, but more from a kind of speculative angle. So 
my story of how I got into crypto, it, and it's related to what I just described, but in 2015, 2016, when this fintech scene was burgeoning in, in London, I wanted to attend an event, and it was like a, a meetup event, just talking about fintech innovations in, in, in global markets or in emerging markets or whatever. But to attend the event, you had to pay in Bitcoin. And this was 2016. I didn't have any Bitcoin. So I opened a Coinbase account. I bought like £100 worth of Bitcoin, which I think at the time got me like 0.4 BTC or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I paid for the ticket in Bitcoin. I remember it was like the equivalent of £10 or £20 or something. And I left the residual Bitcoin in my Coinbase. And that's what really got me down the rabbit hole um, of crypto. So from a speculative angle, then participated for the next few years trading Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, and then a, a couple of like the top 10 coins, um, very much from like a trading perspective, which often ties into what I'm doing now. But it was only once I quit my job that I took the time to really delve into the technology and especially the ability to write smart contracts within DeFi. And that was that was a rabbit hole for me. Isn't that funny that you're in London and you use Coinbase, uh, which is obviously a US-based exchange, but nothing, I, it's, I guess it's just, coming to mind is like i don't think there was a london alternative was there at that point or not maybe not a well-known one or i mean i just find that very curious yeah so coinbase have done an incredible job of like marketing them themselves as like the the safe harbor mm-hmm. if you will within crypto um and at the time i just remember it was this like clean branding very professional fca or fsa or whatever it was at the time regulated um, and so it just seemed like a natural fit. I think they've done a little bit of marketing push um, in the UK. And so they were kind of top of consciousness. Mm. Um, I may have had a friend who had a Coinbase wallet. I, I really don't know. But there wasn't much thought that went into the decision. I just went to the the, the most visible uh, the most visible exchange. And at the time, it was Coinbase. Yeah. And then I, I've heard from a lot of people coming from the traditional financial world into this, into crypto, that you know, in the early days, like then 2016, if you were a currency trader, for example, like just, you could just kind of waltz right over here into crypto. And it's like, oh my God, this is the best market ever because the spreads are huge. And, you know, there's, you know, pretty good volatility. And, and it was a really, um, I think, easy fit for a lot of folks who maybe like yourself had been on the trading floor for a while. Did, did you find it in that way? I know you were doing equity derivatives, but was it, it wasn't very foreign to you, I would have guessed. It wasn't. So what what then happened after I bought my Bitcoin, went to this event, and this event was obviously thought-provoking because they were talking about Bitcoin as an alternative financial system, is I thought of Bitcoin like a commodity. And so I remember at the time being quite bearish on the markets. I don't know, something was going on that that made you feel bearish. Um, And I was buying gold. I was buying physical gold. So maybe like, I don't know, just a a small amount with each monthly paycheck. Um, and I decided to divert a small amount to Bitcoin. So instead of spending like, I don't know, a few hundred pounds a month on gold, I'd, I'd, I'd half it and spend a few hundred pounds a month on Bitcoin, a few hundred pounds a month on gold. So I saw it very much like a commodity that you buy and hold. And then obviously it had this explosive price uh, movement in kind of 2017. So a little bit of like fortunate timing. Yeah. So you were getting in as it like before it went up to 20,000 for the first time. Yeah, so so I like, everyone's got a bit of a sob story, but I'd acquired about uh, 
at least 10 or 15 Bitcoin um, just by buying a small amount every month before things really took off. And when Bitcoin hit 5K, um, I basically sold everything but one. Um, so I missed the move from 5K to 20K very begrudgingly. That's okay. Uh, pretty much everyone I've talked to on this podcast has that similar story. So you're in good company. Yeah, I was I was applying everything the bank tells you, right? Like prudent mismanagement, take profit. Um, this thing is a speculative asset. It's being used for money laundering. It's being used by drug cartels. It's being used for crime. It's going to be subject to a regulatory pry. Um, and I heard all these takes and I had a very kind of institutional lens on Bitcoin, which was it was just this like speculative thing used in the deepest, darkest corners of the web. Um, and so when it reached this 5K, it was just like a round number bias. And I just said, oh, I'm just going to sell everything but a little bit um, and obviously proceeded to miss out on, on what would have been a 4X from there. Yeah, I, I think it might have been hard to see the um the fervor i don't know if it was like this in london but in the u.s at that time i know in los angeles uh around thanksgiving uh in in la 2017 i would go to bars and i just hear people talking about bitcoin you know you'd overhear it it was like thanksgiving dinner conversation it would come up because it was hitting twenty thousand, and i think that year I bought my mom some, and I, I think I paid fifteen. I mean, it was at fifteen thousand. I just bought her a hundred dollars worth, and then I moved it uh, from Coinbase to a wallet that I set up for her, and it cost me um, thirty bucks <laughs> to move that stupid Bitcoin because the network was so congested. So her hundred dollars soon became seventy dollars. Um, but it's given us something to talk about over the years. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it really just was a you know, it was kind of like. I don't know, like, it's not like the gold rush, but it was just, it had captured the, the, the zeitgeist at that moment. And I think that, you know, that everybody thought they were going to get filthy rich. And then, of course, it completely crashed the next year. Um, did you, along that way, like, obviously, De DeFi is, is a lot different than Bitcoin. What, what, um, what caught your eye there? And how did you, um, you mentioned smart contracts. Like, was there a certain project or the, um, the difference in the sort of foundational nature of Ethereum versus Bitcoin that appealed to you? Yeah, so if I if I pick up the story there, so Bitcoin went off on this amazing run in 2017. I was still working in the in the finance industry and continued to do so for the next um, two or three years. And obviously, Bitcoin kind of crashed and and like went into this this bear market, and so did Ethereum. Um, I just held what I had and like just always saw it as a kind of whatever asset like maybe didn't make up much of my my portfolio and then when i quit my job i still wasn't really actively looking at the space um and a friend mentioned something about ave so ave and compound were like the, the first kind of borrowing and lending platforms on ethereum so we're like in DeFi summer or territory yeah so you're, you're approaching 2020 roughly yeah so you're approaching yeah. DeFi summer this is when Ave was still called. Oh, I forget the name now. Anyway, um, and a friend was like, oh, you should check out Ave or Compound. And they had all this ridiculous yield. And I remember just thinking, how can you pay yield in a token which has no value? Like, it's just a governance token. And it just baffled me. I was like, but you're, you're paying for a vote. Like, who cares about governance? 
platform. You're not taking any kind of revenue share in the platform. And they were like, no, but you're paid in this token and the platform, as it grows, there'll be more people that want to have governance over the protocol. And I still was scratching my head. I was like, I don't get the value of governance tokens, but I'll participate and I'll use I'll use the platform. So I use these DeFi platforms. And what got me very interested was this idea that they were doing things in a completely um, permissionless manner. So if you held an asset like ETH, you can put it into a, a, an ETH vault and borrow stable coins against it, right? It's a good way of being maybe like a, a synthetic borrowing or whatever it might be, um, synthetic leverage, because you can borrow more USDC and then be long more ETH, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what really caught my eye, the fact that this was permissionless technology. Anybody could connect their wallet. Um, doxing myself here, but I'm like British Indian and half my family live in India and they had access to the same technology as me. Um, yeah. And they could participate in it, assuming they could they could on ramp into into MetaMask and into the EVM world. And I mean, and, coming from the banking world, that's also like that's a gatekeeping function, right? Of banks, it's like only certain customers or clients of a bank get to do that. And you know, like that they'll take a collateral from you and loan you something else. Like that, that's not some retail folks that are walking in to B of A getting that kind of offer. But here, it's anyone like you just said who can figure out a wallet and figure out MetaMask and, and, and swap the coins. Exactly that. And so it was the permissionless nature of smart contracts that really got me excited. Um, There's a lot of hype at the time, like you could issue bonds on the Ethereum network, or you could have insurance contracts from like an Aviva or somewhere like that, which paid out if certain conditions weren't, weren't were reached in like a, an airplane was canceled or something immediately, the smart contract paid you out. And I saw all these huge inefficiencies, which were choking me when I worked in the bank because it was stifling innovation to to work in a bank. And then I saw this huge possibility that a smart contract can strip away 90% of middlemen or middlewomen or that middle layer, that marzipan layer of staff. And that's what really got me interested. So I started looking at different DeFi uh, applications, so not just borrowing and lending, but some of the AMMs, uh, the automated market makers like Uniswap. And the way that they were creating like synthetic um, financial markets where the price automatically adjusted along bonding curve or, or along pricing curve of some sort. Um, that then led to some like more kind of opportunistic farming and mercenary capital um, where you'd, you'd farm on a particular chain or a particular protocol and then earn more of those tokens and then sell those tokens and move on to the next farm. So you're right. Uh, what's colloquially termed DeFi summer. I was participating in that. Um, And all of that kind of combined led me to December 2021, where I was a member of a DAO called Developer DAO. Um, And I connected with some developer friends and we decided to launch a DeFi project. So it was all kind of experimental following my interest. I guess in some way I was fortunate that COVID happened because it gave me the time to sit and read and learn about a lot of these things um, and not having the job and, and whatever was was also uh, obviously liberating on my time as well. And that was the foundation of Pair Protocol? No, that was a foundation of something, uh, a subsection of DeFi called Farming as a Service. So at that time, December 2021, there was all this yield to be extracted on chain. So you had 
things yeah, can like we, um, can you slow it down and like let's explain for listeners like what is yield farming and how does that actually work absolutely so yield farming comes in many different forms but two of the most kind of common are providing liquidity uh let's say somebody wants to trade eth for usdc Typically, what you would do is you would go to a centralized exchange like Coinbase. You would take your USDC or your US dollars, convert them to USDC, um, or convert your US dollars directly and buy ETH. Right? That's been the way for centralized exchanges to operate and trade. The innovation that happened in DeFi and especially with regards to automated market makers was this idea that you could become a market maker which means you could put up into a pool ETH, 50% of your assets in ETH, 50% in USDC, and then other people would participate in that pool, so it was completely balanced initially. And then as every time somebody traded against that pool, so a user came in the front end of Uniswap, um, swapped, let's say, one USDC for 0.01 ETH, the pool became slightly imbalanced. Um, and you could be the provider of that liquidity. You could provide ETH or USDC or both assets uh, in the pool and earn a percentage of those trading fees. And so yield farming in that way was being an LP, was being a liquidity provider. Um, that's one way of yield farming. Another is just to provide um, an asset, like on a borrowing and lending platform, you might provide uh, a collateral asset at USDC that people can borrow and you get paid a yield. Um, to do that, and then you had all these other crazy like things like uh, Olympus DAO and and their whole concept of protocol owned liquidity and these kind of game theory mechanics of as long as you don't sell and as long as people don't come in, then we can be in this perpetual money printing machine. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. Last year in twenty twenty two, when we had so many failures in the space, um, a lot of centralized failures. The these sort of um, decentralized markets like Uniswap and all the others performed pretty well. Like I don't remember any blowups in that market. And I think it probably got rough. I think there's probably some some pretty big liquidity issues um if you're trading in some of the altcoins. But um for the most part, uh it was impressive that those decentralized exchanges worked as advertised. Exactly. Especially the borrowing and lending markets. So if you think about just to like simplify your answer, yield farming is finding opportunities to generate interest on chain. And you might be able to do that by putting up different assets on different platforms and earn a percentage of the, the trading revenue. Um, you're right. One thing that worked particularly well was the borrowing and lending platforms. So let's say a user's come to uh, Aave. They've decided they're quite optimistic on ETH. They already hold ETH. So they put all their ETH on deposit on Aave. They earn some interest for doing so. They then, on the borrowing side, say, hey, look, my ETH is collateral. I want to borrow USDC. So they borrow, let's say, let's say they put $1,000 worth of ETH down as collateral. They're earning interest on that. They might go and borrow 50% LTV. So they might go and borrow 500 USDC. Mm -hmm. That 500 USDC, they might do whatever they want, spend it in real life. They might go and buy some more ETH, whatever it might be. Now, as long as the value of the ETH collateral doesn't fall below 500, that position's fine. The minute it does, then they need to run a liquidation, take your ETH collateral and sell it in the market so that the borrower, and you get to keep the 500 you borrowed, 
and the platformer, whoever's provided that is is uh, is not taking a loss. They've taken your ETH from you and they've taken it at a value more than 500. Um, those liquidations were processed incredibly smoothly. And if I draw a contrast to a bank where they need to liquidate an asset of yours, it can go through an entirely inefficient and often unmeritocratic legal system where other people get access to their capital before others. And you saw that with FTX, there was like a withdrawal queue and some people just got preferential treatment depending on where they did their KYC, depending on if they knew somebody on the inside. That didn't happen in DeFi. In DeFi, you got what the smart contract said you were gonna get. And if you were gonna get liquidated, it was processed smoothly. If you put a withdrawal request, you were just in line, depending on when you put that withdrawal request in. And so everything worked fine and it was a great stress test. And you're right, it was all the failures of 2022 were centralized exchange failures or CFI failures. DeFi was incredibly resilient. Another aspect of that that's really interesting is on the banking side, you might not even know the value of what you're holding and trying to sell, right? Like in the financial crisis, there were tranches of um, collateralized debt obligations, you know, made up of mortgages that God knows where they were coming from. And you're trying to like sell them because you, you needed, you know, you were getting margin calls or whatever it was, whatever the case may be, but nobody could agree on the price. So then that's a whole nother aspect that you get into with traditional finance, where in this case with the ETH and US dollar coin, you know, you know, the pricing, you know, any second of the day. Um, so I, I guess it's, we shouldn't say, I don't mean to say that um, DeFi doesn't get overly complicated because it certainly does. But in, in this case, like everything is just right there out in the open. And I find that really um, refreshing. And I think, um, I, I think a lot of people do as well. Yeah, what was what was amazing, right? Is when I when Lehman was going down in the kind of October, September fifteenth, I think it was two thousand and eight. The way that information was being disseminated, and I think I was doing some kind of internship of some sort, is it was being disseminated through media outlets, and then banks didn't know the true extent of their um, exposure. Yeah. internally never mind to other banks they didn't know their own internal exposure whereas with DeFi, what you had was real-time analysis so you had on twitter in particular people identifying wallets tagging them to individual funds or entities and saying these are the assets they have this is what's at risk if eth goes to this level this is how much um ltv they have this is how much bad debt they have like you can see it all on chain and that was just fascinating to draw a comparison between something that had happened 13, 14 years ago where everybody was like, what the hell is this? And how much mortgage uh, of this like toxic mortgage debt do I hold? Right. Versus people who knew exactly where, in a crowdsource manner, where the risks were. Um, and it created a lot of opportunity for arbitragers. Yeah, absolutely. And just one last point on that. Then, then you add the swaps market on top of that where... Like banks literally did not know how much exposure they had to each other because it was such a tangled web because those are all private and there was no one sorting out like, okay, what's my net exposure between Deutsche and Goldman or, you know, JP Morgan and Credit Suisse? Like there was, it would take you weeks to figure that out. And that's, um, as I remember reporting on at the time, a huge reason that the Fed 
just decided to, to, to come in with TARP and just start throwing money um, at the global financial system because they were, it was going to, it was going to come down basically. <laughs> so I, I get it, but um, you know, what a fucking mess, you know, <laughs> <laughs> at the heart of DeFi um, is this idea of collateral, right? Like you put up some asset, it's worth something. And the other party, whether it's a platform or an individual user, if anything goes wrong, they have a right over that collateral. Mm-hmm. And you can always ask for more collateral or whatever it might be. Um, in banks, it's incredibly inefficient because you need to have an ISDA CSA, a legal agreement. You then have an annex to each of those uh, ISDA CSA agreements. With yeah, like, and these ISDAs can be 800 pages long. I mean, they're insane. Long, yeah. And it can be different for every single entity within like every single fund that an entity has right um, and then you've got to post against individual trades initial margin and variation margin and there's emails going back and forth between like an army of hundreds of back office staff trying to agree how much they should they should uh post and then like a t plus two settlement on top of all of that mm-hmm. and in DeFi, what's amazing is the smart contract dictates where collateral flows and it's almost instantaneous settlement and people people like to say like i've got a lot of detractors who uh, still work in tradfi and they think i'm working on ponzi's and like you know this whole thing is just like one big scam i say to them like the efficiency gains for things like collateral management or otc dealing um and the fact that things are governed by code and not by humans and especially not by lawyers, it's incredibly powerful. And, and if you can't see that yet, um, I think <laughs> I think it's a very tainted lens through which you look at things. Yeah, agreed. And that's touching on something that I wanted to ask you about because um, I've often heard from folks in big banks that the technology that they have is kind of a shit show. Like they might have seven different systems that have been patched together from acquisitions and or maybe something's very old and it's just never been upgraded and then you bring in like a blockchain based system like an enterprise based system where you know a, a group of banks in a market could all be connected and like that was a always seemed to me to make a lot of sense like this would be a very like you were saying a way to gain a lot of efficiency because when these trades are t plus two which means they don't settle for two days you've got to put some of your capital aside until that settles in case something goes wrong so you can't use that money for anything else and so that's costing the bank's money if you could make it more instantaneous on an enterprise blockchain system then you know you've, you've freed up a lot of capital to do other things with so what was it was it more like i'm curious when you were at the banking side of your career was the technology bad or was it more like, just like you were saying that, that the need for people and the need for lawyers, like what, or was that a mix of those things? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was a mix of things. I think there was a, a confluence of personal factors. So like hitting this age milestone of 30, having kind of missed the web two fintech boat um, and having watched some of the companies I could have joined, go, go and do an IPO. Um, it was obviously like a, uh, a realization that the things that were really growing in the S&P were the tech names and everything else was kind of a little bit stagnant. There was a lot of observation uh, going on as to what was happening outside of TradFi. And then within traditional finance, um, there was a lot of inertia 
to change because the minute that you start to replace these systems, um, a lot of people and a lot of jobs are potentially going to go. And yeah. so it's a bit like turkeys voting for Christmas when you when you kind of go into these meetings about whether this new technology should be implemented. And you have to get all these fierce competitors to cooperate. You know, that was always a huge battle when I was reporting on this for Bloomberg. It was like, why would, you know, usually these, these guys are at each other's throats all day long trying to get the better trade or to, to woo a customer to come to them. And now all of a sudden it's like, no, we have to cooperate and we have to trust each other in a system where it, it's possible that like, I might show you something I, I am not supposed to show you, right? So there was a lot of trepidation about that as well, I think. Yeah, I think you're I think you're exactly right. The incentives are not aligned for people to to take risk. Um, yeah. and that's a good thing because yeah. obviously the regulators wanted that, not to take financial risk and not to take especially risk which leads to like contagion and moral hazard. But what it's also done is created like a mindset of not taking any risk in terms of innovation as well amongst Correct. Yeah. And and to me this is all fine because like we we're talking about, DeFi is happening. It's an alternative. It's it's being done now, and it doesn't matter that the banks don't like this or not. They don't really matter to the conversation because people are making this happen, and they have been making it happen for many years now. And so, I always try to people like with naysayers you were mentioning. They all seem to think that it has to be all or nothing, and that's just the wrong way of thinking about this. The most of what we're talking about here is an alternative to what already exists, and I think. If you can't see that, it's like the dollar's not going to go away. Wall Street's not going away. It's it's this is all an alternative to those systems for people who want an alternative. And I, I it gets a little tiresome to have to sort of like talk to people who don't can't see that, you know, because it's kind of staring them in the face. <laughs> but let's go. Okay, so now we're ready. You you had a kind of a proto company before Pair Protocol, but was there? A pain point or something or that you guys were noticing or, or what, what was the problem you were trying to solve that um, led to pair there was a so december 2021 we decided to launch a token mechanism where investors swap their eth for our token and then we would actively farm on their behalf so this concept of yield farming um the way i described it by doing like providing liquidity on uniswap by participating in a borrowing and lending market by maybe even bridging over to another chain like avalanche and playing some of these games and earning yield it's a lot of cumbersome work right it's a lot of clicking buttons it's a lot of like hopping between different protocols and well is that very different than just a hedge fund but in the, dig the digital asset space you get exactly, you've exactly. got right you're doing yeah that's what a hedge fund does right exactly that so this idea that there was yield to be captured but you had to be active in what you're doing and and fairly fast fingers at the same time i saw the inefficiency and so we decided to uh, launch a project the subsection that we created within DeFi was called farming as a service um, and our whole business premise was to generate yield for anybody who bought our token and we would do that by taking their ETH farming across different chains and then passing back the yield in ETH terms so the whole point was that they they would kind of earn these rewards above and beyond what the value of their initial ETH was sure well taking a little cut for yourselves of course, of yeah. course. So that was our business model, and it was incredibly successful because the opportunities to yield farm were incredible. So the 
baseline, and now I'm going to bring in a villain, but like the benchmark yield in a lot of people's minds was 20% per annum because they were going to Doquan's Terra blockchain. <laughs> they were going on Anchor Protocol and they were putting this UST, which you know was great marketing to call it US Treasuries, like the same three letters as US Treasuries, UST, um, US Terra, and making 20% yield. That was the baseline expectation in 2021, 2022. Yeah. Most of the incentivized farms on Phantom or Avalanche, et cetera, were paying you something in the magnitude between 100% and 1,000% APR or APY, rather, um, especially if you reinvested the tokens or sold and reinvested the tokens. So for us, generating yield wasn't that difficult because there was plentiful opportunities. And then the summer came. But the risk um, management is like, that's the whole game there, right? Because you do not want to get caught when everything collapses. Correct. You don't want to be left holding the baby. And so it's, some call it risk management, some call it mercenary capital. Like the intention, the idea is you've just got to diversify your risk and go from farm to farm, opportunity to opportunity, and hopefully not get hacked along the way, or one of the platforms doesn't get hacked along the way. And that was our value add for investors. And they were really happy because we were making these yields, right, um, for them. And then the summer came and Three Arrows Capital collapsed. Luna collapsed. The entire edifice and, and idea of 20% being the benchmark yield um, obviously got, got torn apart and, and shown to be what it was, which was like a, a kind of naked ponzi if you will um, and the yields collapsed across the board so on-chain activity died down lots of liquidations happened prices were much lower total volume uh, captured in DeFi was decimated um not not quite literally decimated but did go down like more than 50 percent um and yield just collapsed and so for us, we were like, we need to generate return for these investors. It might not be 100% plus APY. What can we do? And so we started scratching our heads. I dipped into my old expertise, which was in uh, volatility. So I was selling options, maybe doing some volatility arbitrage between different platforms. Um, but that wasn't scalable, uh, at least given the maturity of the options market. And then we decided upon pairs trading. So kind of dusted off a lot of like uh, uh, TradFi textbooks from the 90s and this idea that you can be long one asset and short another asset. Um, and just to narrative. jump in there, if you're long, you want, you're hoping that the price goes up. And if you're short, you're hoping the price goes down. And if those occur, then you're making money on each side of the trade. Exactly. So a good example over the past few years, you, you may have wanted to be long Apple and short Meta. And even though Meta or Facebook has gone up in value, Apple has gone up way more over a period of five years or 10 years. And so the, and if, the idea- And if you were doing that trade and like on the Wall Street side, do you have to go to a bank and get them to do it for you? Like the, that's a tough trade to do on a public exchange, right? Correct, because of the shorting, right? Right, so, so that's very dangerous. Like you can lose a hell of a lot of money if you're short and it goes the wrong way against you. Well, especially if, like, let's think about it from, from each component. If you're an investor and you have a view, right, you don't care if the NASDAQ is going to go up or down. 
But you do think that Apple is fundamentally undervalued compared to Facebook or Meta, especially with all the like VR hype and everything going on. So the trade is quite clear. You want to be long Apple, you want to be short Meta. Now, being long Apple is easy. You can go to any brokerage and you can be long Apple. Yeah, you just buy shares. You can just yeah. buy it. But how do you sell something you don't have? You need access to a borrow market. You need to be able to borrow those Meta shares from somebody sell them in the open market at today's price, let's say $200. And then in three months from now, six months from now, somebody comes back and says, hey, I want my meta shares back. You buy them at a much cheaper price in the market. Let's say they're now $30 and you buy back the same number of shares that you initially sold at a much cheaper total price and you pocketed the difference, right? Yeah, right. That's the idea of shorting. So you do need a bank or you need some kind of yeah. bank or platform that allows you to borrow. And you're usually you're an accredited investor. You have to be sophisticated. All sorts of like tests are done. So this is not a retail thing for the most part for people. For the most part, no. And for the most yeah. part, it's hedge funds dealing with banks yeah. um, that take these kind of trades on. But again, to take this into DeFi, everyone has the opportunity to have access to this sort of um, pairs trading. Everybody has access because the infrastructure has already been built in a permissionless way, right? So the idea of decentralized exchanges is that you have access to the same trading tools that are otherwise reserved for accredited investors or for hedge funds or these like big institutions. Well, within DeFi, like nobody cares who you are. You just go onto a decentralized exchange, load it up with some cash, and you can trade whatever assets you like, long and short. Yeah, absolutely. How much longer after December 2021 did Pair Protocol sort of come into focus? So, so what was happening was summer of 2022 was happening. The yields had collapsed and we couldn't or didn't have the stomach to do much yield farming because there was just not much opportunity. And then once you factor in the smart contract risk and the fact that smart contracts can be compromised and all the assets can be drained from a, a protocol, we started doing more and more of this pairs trading. Now, the example I just gave you in TradFi is a narrative trade. You believe that Apple is going to outperform Meta. Crypto trades off narratives all the time. A common narrative is that Ethereum will one day flip in Bitcoin in terms of market cap. So Ethereum to outperform Bitcoin. Other narratives come about all the time, like this layer one, whether it's Solana or Avalanche or Phantom, will outperform a different uh, layer one, let's say Ethereum, right? There's an Ethereum killer. Or there's other narratives that come about around gaming or around... Um, Pepe or memes. Meme memes, coins, exactly. Right? Yeah. And for a small period of time, there will be a narrative that will outperform the broader market. And so for us in the summer, what we were doing in lieu of there being many other yield farming opportunities was doubling down on pair trades. So we were being long Ethereum versus short Ethereum classic, the kind of uh, old proof of work network. Yeah. Um, we were being long Atom and short Solana because of everything that was going on with uh, FTX and the rumors surrounding SBF, but long like a, a competitor layer one. And what we realized is when we pair trade, we're currently going to Binance or we're going to some kind of decentralized exchange. And even though we have the ability to long one asset and short another asset, once you start to do that on a systematic basis, like build a portfolio of longs and build a portfolio of shorts, there's a whole host of problems that we encountered. 
We had to post margin against each individual long, post margin against each individual short. We had to work out the, the PL manually on like an atom sole pair. Um, from a like visual perspective, there was just it tens of lines of positions at some point. Um, and also from talking to people, we were like, oh, you want to pairs trade, but there's nowhere for you to do it. And so that was the genesis of pair protocol was to build a UI and a UX dedicated to narrative trading. So if a narrative forms like Pepe, then you could be long Pepe and short Bitcoin. And if I'm doing a lot of different long shorts on pair protocol, um, are you, because I'm all at the same place, are you netting that down for me so that I know, okay, here's your sort of like net position encompassing all of the things you're doing? Uh, so it's done on a on a pair by pair basis. So if you're long ETH and short Bitcoin, there'll be a PL attached to that pair. If you are long uh, Lido and short Rocket Pool, there'll be a PL attached to that pair. Um, okay. So what we're doing is rather than you have two trades for each pair trade, you have one, and that one trade is actually tokenized as an NFT. So it's it's a, like a unique innovation, but we're tokenizing your net trading position as an ERC721, as an NFT, so that it's fully composable. You can now move your trading position across different wallets. You could take it to a borrowing and lending platform and borrow against your trading position, bringing about capital efficiency. So can we dive into that a little more? Because you um, that's fascinating, but I don't quite understand what you mean by uh, my position is now tokenized as an NFT. Is, sure. this, is the NFT how, is it? Is it an XNFT with a smart contract inside of it? or? So right now, let's say you, you have a view that ETH is going to outperform Bitcoin. But broader than that, you don't know whether crypto is going to go up or down. That's a great kind of market under which to pairs trade. To do that kind of pair trade, to be long ETH and short Bitcoin at the same time, you'd have to go to somewhere like Binance, open a long and open a short separately, right? You're paying funding on the long, you're paying funding on the short, uh, if you're using perps, and then you're working out your manual PL. On pair protocol, you land, you select the asset you want to be long, select the asset you want to be short, use some kind of stable coin as your collateral asset, slide up your leverage if you wish to use it, and click open position. Now, when you click open position, what we're doing is creating one net trading position, which has one PL. And it's long ETH BTC at whatever the spread is at the time. Mm-hmm. The NFT itself is just a on-chain image rendering of metadata that's on-chain. So what I mean by that is the NFT is simply like a visual representation of your PL. But it has economic value. The value of your NFT will, will change in a dynamic manner based on the metadata attached to it. So it's it's somewhat like an or it is an ownership claim on that pair trade correct yeah okay all right which can be broken down and then you can claim the usdc equivalent okay what are the risks um inherent in here i I know leverage anytime leverage comes into the equation people can get it can get messy um but as we've been talking about i would assume your protocol has these measures where if the collateral is is blown out then the trade is is um is is liquidated is it is that what's going on or like what is is maybe a liquidity crunch on the platform one of your major concerns or where are the risks in this so liquidations are like running efficient liquidations is obviously our problem 
because otherwise the platform ends up holding holding the baby, if you will, mm. if we don't process the liquidation effectively. Um, however, pairs trading, if you think about being long ETH and short BTC, moves within a fairly tight band, right? So if ETH goes up 5% and Bitcoin goes up 4%, then you've made 1% that day. So you've lost 4% on Bitcoin, but you've made 5% on ETH. And vice versa, if it goes the other way and ETH is down, let's say uh, 10% and Bitcoin's only down 9%, you've lost 1% there because you've made, you've made your 9% on Bitcoin but lost 10% on ETH. Very rarely do the two diverge. So very rarely are you going to have a day where ETH is down 10% and Bitcoin's up 10%. So the scenarios under which you lose on both legs is, is very rare. Um, the bands within which a pair trade move is usually between like 0 or 1% a day. Obviously, as you slide up your leverage, those, those uh, gains and losses become somewhat magnified. Um, but that's not the real risk. The, the risk to us is that we're trying to do something brand new. And in the process of doing that, um, obviously, there's lots of testing involved. So what we're finding in the process of building Pair Protocol, and we're in private beta at the moment, is there's a lot of these kind of edge cases that we need to think about, where the collateral flows, uh, how the liquidations are run, if only one of the legs is liquidated and not the other, mm-hmm. um, any kind of time delays in burning the NFT image, like things that are really kind of on the on the precipice of innovation. Um, which we're encountering as as roadblocks, but it's great to do because that's that's why we're in it, right? Not just to make money, but to like create modular technology that other people can build on top of. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. And then we talked a little bit about this before, um, but uh, Huff is not your real name, and you you have concerns about some of the regulatory environment and and some other things. I was wondering if you could just talk about that, and because listeners probably know there's quite a few teams out there in in web3 that are pseudonymous and and not you know they're not using their real names for various reasons and i'd love to hear what your thinking was behind that and and why um you're not putting your real name out there at this point yeah so my real name and my my eyes entity is out there in the sense that we're vc backed right so whenever we uh, spoke to a venture cap firm or whenever we spoke to a market maker um, we put our cameras on we told our names they asked for our LinkedIn's and our backgrounds etc we're happy to do that even when I'm at conferences I have my real name on my badge if I'm on a panel or I'm a speaker I have my real name the main reason is from like a public domain so especially on Twitter going out into the world as Huff is a lot more comfortable than going out with my like first name and last name and it's because of two things, you're right. The first is regulatory. Um, we're in a grey area or an evolving area, rather, a very fluid area of uh, regulatory developments when it comes to DeFi. Now, I'm in the UK, so I have a UK nexus, and the UK regulator is a lot more friendly than they are in the US. But you're right, a lot of teams, especially if they have a US nexus, will um, will decide to be anonymous because they're, they're quite clearly uh in the line of sight of the sec and other regulatory bodies i think for me as somebody who sits in the uk and and potentially is part of the whole mika legislation that's coming in until a lot of that is clearer being the co-founder of a regular of a decentralized exchange is just much more comfortable to like 
be Hoth mm-hmm. and have my avatar there um, until I've got full regulatory certainty on how I sh- how this should be taxed, how geo-blocking works of our users and so many other th- expectations which have not been formally written down. Right. Um, and then the second is crypto Twitter in particular, which is where a lot of the activity goes on in terms of knowledge and research and sharing of views, is quite a toxic place. And when people find out who you are, um, they can use that to meme your identity uh, once they know that you're responsible for treasury, which uh, can make anywhere between 50k a day in fees. Once they know that you're previously managing like a fairly big portfolio um, on behalf of DAOs, you just put a dot on your head, uh, which I don't necessarily need to do. Um, and it's not a key requirement. There's not people on Twitter demanding to see my face or my full right. name. Right. In like a public domain, I'd rather be Huff uh, privately and and with like professional individuals like yourself, Matt. I'm happy to to go by my name. Are you paying attention to what's happening in the United States on the regulatory front, or is that just like, are you concentrating on the UK, or like, um, do you have any perspective on, you know, obviously as as you've said, and as you know, it's pretty clear to anybody who's paying attention, the UK is much more friendly right now um, to to kind of decentralized applications. The, the US is seems on a, uh, I don't know what to call it. Uh, they they just want to shut down um, as much of this as they can, and and they're choking the banks and and doing things that you know you really can't get around. Um, but how how is that from your point of view? I am following it very closely um, because. We have a legal team, right, that support us, and everything in our setup has been done in conjunction with them. Um, so they've, they've set up them. the kind of DAO setup with the Cayman Foundation. They've set up our token issuance vehicle, which is offshore. We've got the DevCo, which is a UK development company. And then they've given us wording and guidance to put with regards to US investors using this and, and not being able to use this, etc. What's particularly of interest to me with regards to the US is staking and the way that they either perceive ETH as a security and whether they see ETH yield in the form of um, proof of stake payments and yield that's being generated as a interest bearing um, instrument. Instrument, exactly. Right. And so that is an interesting development because obviously it has potentially global ramifications. Um, my perspective on what's happening in the US is that they were caught with their pants down with regards to FTX. And there's like this overreach and overreaction. Um, to Amen to that. I don't think it was even their pants down. They had their hands in his pocket, you know, exactly that. and a lot of them look really bad. So they're overreacting um, in the other way now, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think there's certain individuals, right, at like the SEC or whatever, they've, they've created a persona for themselves. And they feel emboldened every time somebody comes from them. It's, it gives them a sense of purpose in the latter years of their career uh, to to play like a villain arc. And there are people in the world who just enjoy it. They just enjoy that villain arc um, in the name of doing good in the world and creating a name for themselves. And they don't want to be a nobody that goes down as like a you know another aging uh, regulator who disappeared into the abyss. They want to create a name for themselves and they have a small opportunity. Bless them. Because they're creating an opportunity to create anti-fragility and create other innovation hubs in the world. Yeah, I'll say it. It's Gary Gensler. 
but you don't have to say it. Um, <laughs> um, okay, well, th this has been fascinating. Um, I know the protocol isn't yet live. You said you're in private beta. Do you have, um, w what's the timing for a launch? Um, so like I said, we are building pretty experimental and new and innovative tech. This idea of being able to tokenize a trading position and then have that trading position, the, the jargon is composable across DeFi. Um, is obviously like something we're, we're building and, and excited about building. The other piece that we're doing, uh, which is, is really cool, is we are tapping into off-chain liquidity, so integrating directly with market makers, so that rather than go through an order book like DYDX, uh, Pair Protocol directly faces market makers, and that'll be a huge game changer in terms of being able to scale um, the number of assets tradable on-chain the fact that we're doing those two things, so tokenizing us NFTs and then integrating with off-chain liquidity via market makers, uh, means that private beta is probably going to be ongoing throughout May and June. Um, we'll then get the audits done and look to do a full public launch. Uh, we're aiming for August with a token launch of the pair token in September. So those are some of the key dates that we are working towards. Okay. And that's why you're concerned about staking, right? Because you would come into the pair, the protocol and buy pair token with whatever, right? And then that's how you use it on the on the platform. Am I correct with that? Correct. So the pair protocol is going to generate trading fees. Our estimate on trading fees is anywhere between fifty k and hundred k a day. So quite meaningful fees. Um, and because we're building a decentralized project, the intention would be to to kind of pay those fees back to all token holders so that everybody has a say in how the protocol is governed and run. Um, I think the the kind of general thinking, and, and you'll know this, Matt, in DeFi is you build stuff and then other people run it over time, right? And you kind of just step back. And so, yeah, we're quite keen on staking developments because there is currently in the pipeline, um, it's scheduled for us to have like a staking mechanism for the pair token. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, um, have tell people how they can get involved or, or find out more or follow you guys uh, on your roadmap. Perfect. So I think to follow me, it's on Twitter at H-U-F-H-A-U-S, so Huffhouse9. Um, you should be able to find me as the co-founder of Pair Protocol. To follow Pair Protocol, again, Twitter is the best place for Pair underscore Protocol. Um, we do utilize memes quite often, but we are quite a, uh, a serious um a serious project and then the pair protocol twitter page will take you to our discord and have a discord link and that's where you'll find at least uh, a handful of the core team of 10 people there available daily to answer any questions um and and share any kind of more details about when we're launching and when the token's coming as well i did notice uh, the pepe uh, meme is quite strong on your pair protocol twitter page so we was... yes we are probably <laughs> Is it the green, the pear and the green, like just sort of goes together? It all kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Huff, thank you so much. Uh, this has been fascinating. And, and thanks for sharing um, all of your insights and your, and your backstory with us. Um, and, and best of luck uh, with the, the public launch. Perfect. Thank you so much, Matt. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Ives. <laughs>